This year, move the dirt and make an impact by signing up for Power Athlete Program to crush your goals. Join our tens of thousands of athletes around the globe already empowering their performance as power athletes. For less than a dollar a day, get our world-class coaching delivered straight to the palm of your hand. Our programming is performance-driven and goal-oriented. Finally tuned through my first-hand experience playing the NFL and subsequent decade-long coaching and collaborating with some of the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. As a special time offer for the month of January, Hey Upfront for a full year of training will give you a free 15-minute consult with myself or one of the crew, plus your choice of nutrition protocol, putting you on the best path for success. Visit powerathlete.com forward slash training and start today. Those who start tomorrow never get shit done. Start fucking today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. This week, a legend joins John and Tex to talk about his history training track and field sport athletes. Dan Pfaff stumbled into this niche after coaching at the high school level, then college, and eventually began training Olympians. His voice and command presence reflects the seasoned coach that he has become after decades of working with these elite athletes. Here it is, brought to you by Thorne, episode 576. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast of Strength and Conditioning. I'm John Walborn. I'm joined here by Mr. McQuilkin. Good Hello. to see you. Hey, right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Me. Happy New You. And we're joined by uh, world famous uh, coach Dan Path. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I don't know about world famous. Oh, world famous, world class. We can, you know, we can do whatever we want. Dan, you, we spoke before. You have some experience on a ranch yourself. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in uh, farm country. My father's from Wisconsin and dairy farmers and then he moved to Dayton, Ohio during World War II and so we were small farmers there. So primarily uh, Holstein dairy and then a lot of egg, a lot of baling hay and fruit and vegetables and things of that nature. So I understand working the land very well. Yeah, we were out there uh, cutting trees and I'm saying those china berries are so hard that uh, as you're cutting you can actually see sparks coming off of them and you know off the chainsaw. And as we got done, uh, my wife and I were just kind of sitting there, kind of watching it. And uh, the old man who uh, we got the land from, Mr. Perkins, who's in his 90s, told us stories about them coming out and cutting these trees down and, like, you know, managing this whole thing with, like, ropes, axes, and uh, hand, you know, uh, saws. Yeah, and, like, digging out stumps and this whole deal. And to think that, like, they they did all this without any equipment is pretty interesting. Well. And there's the pyramids in Egypt. So some of those old guys probably had a better grip on things than we do with all this tech. Well, isn't this this idea that uh, as we progress, we somehow become more intelligent and then all of a sudden everything's antiquated? I mean, think about the performance training world and strength, conditioning and speed. Uh, you know, everybody's got some new adaptation, which just feels like all they went and did was read books from 50 years ago and are now just trying to repurpose it. Yeah, I, I find it interesting with a lot of young coaches that I mentor. I'll bring up people like Comey and Bosco and uh, Schmidt Bleicher in Germany, and they're like, they don't even know who these guys are. And they were foundational guys, you know, in the science. Well, Dan, take us back to your origin. So earlier you said you were working on the farm and within a school. Is that where you got your coaching be? Origins. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, so the Vietnam War and the protests and the civil rights movement. So it's pretty chaotic time. So 
I was <clears throat> in university trying to dodge the draft as best as possible because, you know, we were just blue-collar area and dating a lot of factory workers. I think I went to like 18 funerals before I even got out of college from mm-hmm. Vietnam casualties. And I was <clears throat> pretty adept at sciences. Uh, my dad ran a construction company, so, you know, I knew a lot of the construction trade and I knew the farming trade, which is kind of a blessing because most of those uh, industries kind of make you a neo-generalist, if you will. Sure. And you learn to build networks and that you can't know everything about everything, so you better know people that do. And, um, you know, I went in to see my advisor. He goes, what are, what are you trying to do here? And I was like, uh going to school and he goes well you know you've been here four years you probably ought to graduate and I was like because uh, <laughs> you know my draft number on the lotto was 13 so I knew I was going and yeah. uh, he said look you know we, we've got a real shortage in Ohio for science teachers and you know we can if you take some education classes and whatnot we can get you an emergency certificate I said does that keep me out of the war he goes oh absolutely you know there's these forms and I was like okay I'm in and so while I was in university, I kind of volunteered at my old high school. They were understaffed and under-budgeted, and, then, you know, I kind of got the coaching bug that way. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll teach science classes and coach and dodge the war. Wow. And work on the farm. Yeah. What, uh, what year were you born? Uh, 54. 54. Yeah, my, um, my brother's wife's dad uh, graduated high school. And like, you know, the day after graduation, got his draft card and was in Vietnam like three months later and uh, ended up surviving and coming home. And he's like every single day he goes, he goes up. It's the, you know, every day after that's been like the best day of my life. And uh, yeah, it's pretty awful. It was a, it was a terrible time in this country for sure. You see any parallels between that time and kind of what's happening presently? Yeah. I'm a history buff and I think the wheel turns, uh, Pretty consistently, especially, you know, in these times of tribalism and divided and everybody's, oh, it's the worst the country's ever been in. But uh, if you lived in the 60s, it was pretty bad then. And, you know, Cold War scare, you know, I remember every week in school we had to climb under our desk in case they had a bomb. And, you know, I, I was kind of a thinker back then. I was like, how, how is being under a desk going to save me from an atom bomb? <laughs> but, you know, we did it because... That's what we were told to do. Yeah, no, uh, my mom made a good point. Um, you know, she grew up, or she she lived in San Francisco. She was a uh, accountant during the '60s. Um, came from Canada and then got hired by a uh, accounting firm that like architecture, and uh, lived in San Francisco. And you know, really at the height of that deal. And she's like, honestly, it was a scary place. She's like, you didn't want to go out. You didn't want to go downtown. You'd see, you know, the protests and this. And she's like, there was this idea of San Francisco and the summer love. And she's like, it looked like a war zone every single day. And I never wanted to leave my apartment. Well, you know, there was like the SDS, you know, they were bombing ROTC buildings. And then, you know, in Ohio, we had Kent State. So, and then, you know, I had people that were freedom riders to the South with voter registration, you know, people, you know, jailed or killed in those processes. So, um, you know, our country's had some pretty chaotic times, you know, the great depression. And, um, so I think it, you know, when it's immediate history, you know, it always is alarming, but to me, the wheel of history turns. Yeah. I think it's a uh, Doris Keating's Goodwin. Uh, she did a masterclass. Um, she's a presidential historian. Her husband was Kennedy speechwriter and she was one of uh, LBJ's assistants. And she made a really interesting point that America is not that fragile. 
And I, uh, I always kind of go back to that. And she's like, America has, uh, you know, never cracked. And even though we've seen, you know, some, you know, stress points, America is not that fragile. She's like, as long as we have faith in it, it'll, you know, persevere. And I think that's a, a pretty good piece. Well, I'm hopeful. Yeah. So, uh, uh, give us a little history, right? So, uh, how did you, you know, you work as a science teacher and you get into coaching. How does that really kind of transition into, you know, in the last 20, 30 years? I was a high school coach, uh, you know, in the seventies, early seventies. And, you know, you kind of did it all. So, you know, I, uh, had to tape ankles and fill whirlpool tubs, you know, cause I was kind of sciencey, you know, I was the athletic trainer. They didn't have them back then. And, uh, we, we built a small weight room. Uh, weight training wasn't real prevalent, you know, in the early seventies, even in football, even in Ohio, which was a football Mecca. And so because I worked in track and field with throwers, you know, I knew I'd studied weight training and what was going on there. So all of a sudden I'm the unofficial strength coach and off-season conditioning guy. So a lot of my career has just been circumstantial. It just kind of the door opened and, you know, I walked through it. Um, as a, Back then we didn't have internet. We had library and then we had maybe what you would call a coaching clinic or a symposium. Or a telephone where yeah. you actually had to pick something up and call the person. Or write letters. Or write letters. months for the, for the answer. Or like uh, I was a biomechanist, uh, applied biomechanist. So back then we had Super 8 movies. So you had a camera and you put in a cartridge and you filmed it. Mm-hmm. And then you had to take the cartridge to the drugstore and wait two weeks for it to be developed and come back. So the problem that you thought you had two weeks ago might have disappeared or gotten worse. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we had a hand crank projector and we'd stop the film and had a fan blown on it. So the film wouldn't melt and we'd draw angles and with a protractor measure things. So, uh, you know, now we have dark fish, you know, and you can click a button and measured like 50 angles and all kinds of things all at once. So it's kind of blessed, but I, I stumbled onto a guy named Tom Telez. He was a coach at UCLA at the time and coached many Olympians. And he was the first guy, coach I heard talked about science and systems and biomechanics and whatnot. So I started stalking the guy. Wherever he spoke, I was there. I drove from Dayton to Colorado Springs Training Center, and I to New York. If he was in a clinic in Cleveland, I drove up there. And he had just taken a job at the University of Houston, and, and Coach Telez was Carlos's coach, Leroy Burrell, yeah. endless uh, Olympians. And I asked him, I said, hey, you know, do you have any graduate assistantships or anything? Like that? He goes, no, you know, we have no budget, you know, a very small staff. I said, hey. If I come down and hang out, can I help? He goes, well, how are you going to support yourself? I said, well, I'm a classroom teacher. I can substitute teach or teach driver's ed. Wife works in accounting. You know, we'll find a job. And he goes, well, you know, if you want. And so I went back to Ohio. My wife and I packed everything up. We knew in a U-Haul and moved to Houston. And that started the journey. I was a college coach for 30 years. Uh, one of my stops was at UTEP, which was the United Nations of Track and Field. Miners, yeah. And uh, it was 83 and 84. And in 1984, I, I had nine athletes in the Olympics. I had two medalists. I was at 30 years old, and I thought, shit, this stuff's easy, man. I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. But <clears throat> a lot of international kids. So I started traveling to Europe and meeting their club coaches and seeing where they trained in the off season and developing networks there. And so that tripped me into like East German 
connections and networks in Russian and what you know Eastern Bloc type stuff, and so started collecting training programs and you know filming workouts and things like that. So, like I said, I was just really fortunate. Doors just kept opening at the right time. Pretty awesome. Yeah, no. Where where from Houston did you step up? When was your first head? coaching opportunity. All right. So from Houston, I was a GA for two years and then I got a job at Wichita State in the, in the middle of the wheat fields and that didn't work out too well. Uh, financially, some things fell apart. So Coach Tellez felt bad and he got me the job at UTEP. And uh, so I worked at UTEP two years and then a friend of mine, Lauren Seagrave, had just moved to LSU and he's like, hey, you know, we need help in, in the field events. And that was my area. And uh, we're going to be a combined program. LSU was one of the first combined men and women's programs. And, um, you know, and you did a great job. But at UTEP, I was the head women's coach, but I was the assistant men's coach for field events. So I was a head coach at age 30. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know about budgeting or recruiting or equipment or travel or whatever. You know, it was like baptism by fire. So I moved to LSU and spent 11 years there. And when we got there, the women had never even had an athlete make it to nationals. And by the end of 11 years, we'd won 17 national championships uh, with men and women. So we kind of built that one from the ground up. And then from there, I went to the University of Texas for eight years and then uh, University of Florida for a couple. And then I got into private uh, work because I got tired of fighting uh, politics and bureaucracy <laughs> in the NCAA level. Yeah, the uh, it almost feels like the NCAA is crumbling. <laughs> it appears so. Like yeah. uh, you know, with this NIL and this transfer portal and whatnot, it's it's like chaos city out there right now. I think uh, yeah, I I have so so mixed feelings on it. The fact that these kids can enter these transfer portals, like uh, it, you know, think about the coaching going out and recruiting. All of a sudden, you know, you're 18 years old and so-and-so doesn't like me, which is always the reason you're not playing and doing well. It's because the coach doesn't like you. And now you have the ability to put yourself out in these transfer portals. And a bunch of the kids don't get picked up, which ends up making the coach even more unhappy with them. Yeah. Well, and the the thing, too, also philosophically, you know, for years, uh, the the NCAA, you know, football, basketball, it's kind of been on a developmental paradigm. You know, you get this kid in as a freshman and, you know, you develop skills and abilities and biomotor factors and whatnot. And then they're, you know, senior year, fifth year, senior year, redshirt, you know, they, they reap the developmental process. But now the NCAA has gone to almost like an NFL or Major League Baseball or NBA. It's a management process. It's not development. So mm-hmm. the teams that are going to do well are good at, at managing it. Triage, I call it triage coaching. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily developing. I mean, I remember when I went to the NFL, they told me one day, or uh, when I first got there, if we got to develop you, you're not going to be here. You got to be able to show up and play on day one. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, NFL not for long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, definitely, definitely not that case. Um, you know, the the question I always had um, is like, where did, you know, strength and conditioning and more importantly, as we understand it with like weight training really kind of enter into like the American market. Cause the Russians, at least from what I was, I've read over the years had, had used it, but it really hadn't got into this idea of sport performance with strength training until, you know, maybe in the eighties, even in the nineties. Well, if you, if you study an Eastern block, uh, sports science training theory and whatnot, weight training for, you know, outside of Olympic lifting and the throws in track and field was, was an adjunct. So it was about wellness or injury prevention or whatnot, or it was very sports-specific weight training. Uh, 
Uh, it wasn't the global idea of weight training, you know, that we have. Uh, but in track and field, you know, from the throwing influence, you know, it started leaching into sprinting and hurdling and combined events, and then it bled up into middle distance running. So it, it took a little while, even in the Eastern Bloc, for strength training to kind of morph into other sports and other disciplines of sports. So it wasn't like they just started out and say, hey, everybody in the DDR is going to weight train. You know, it was a process and a journey also. And, you know, I, I can remember, like I said earlier, you know, high school football in Ohio, nobody had a weight room in the 60s. You know, in the 70s, there were a few, and in the late 70s, it started to get more in vogue. And, you know, I remember when NSCA was, you know, formed, you know, and, you know, I used to write for them and serve on committees and whatnot. And, and, you know, that industry started. I remember when there wasn't an athletic trainer position or industry, if you will, and now, you know, that thing. So, the you know, the strength training and the athletic trainers have built this kingdom. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, it's it's an evolutionary process, but it, I've always looked at weight training, you know, whether it's NFL or the Winter Olympians or whatnot, as an adjunct. You know, it shouldn't be a driver. That's my bias. That's my philosophy. It's like if, you, if I do a SWOT analysis and I think certain types of weight training can, can improve those things, and can we nudge those things without negatively affecting the holistic activity, then, you know, let's explore that. I think where we make mistakes is thinking that weight training's the, you know, the get out of jail card. Like if you get stronger, you're going to be better at everything you do. And uh, I don't think that's true. Not for everybody. Yeah. I, I, I once asked, uh, God, I can't remember who it was, but uh, um, man, it was, uh, God, it'll come to me in a second. But basically I was curious how strength training really was first uh, like introduced in the NFL. And actually, there was a uh, um, some like powerlifting meet in in uh, in Pittsburgh uh, that a couple Pittsburgh Steelers went to, and ended up meeting up with these powerlifters. And there was like an interesting. I think it might have come from Mike Webster's son. Uh, and there was just like a kind of an interesting deal where like there was a kind of a crossbreeding, and all of a sudden these football players, you know, whether it was the drugs or whatever, saw what these guys were doing and started kind of started using a little bit more what this guy, what these guys were up to. Yeah, I think there was a guy named Roy in the West Coast, San Diego Chargers back in the day. He was kind of the godfather of weight training in the NFL for my history. You know, kind of old, I forget some of those stories. Well, there, there was an idea that uh, if you lifted weights, it was going to make you inflexible. It was going to make you slow and injury prone. And there was an idea that, you know, people shouldn't do it. Well, and then we went the other ways. Like, everybody needs to get bigger, you know, stronger and supposedly faster. Well, they got bigger and stronger, but they didn't necessarily get faster. But, Dan, on that note, it was Alvin Roy. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, I remember uh, years ago, uh, my rookie year in the NFL, I ruptured my patellar tendon. And uh, I was having a hell of a time. You know, they stitched it back together, and I, like, you know, couldn't bend my knee. I couldn't generate any force. I was having a ton of problems. And so uh, I had hooked up with a guy named Mauro De Pasquale, and Mauro had done all my, my nutrition, and he was uh, hooking me up with supplements. And um, I remember I called Mauro, and I'm like, hey, I'm having a hell of a time. Like, is there somebody you can introduce me to? So he introduced me to Charles Paulquin. Uh, that didn't go very well, um, just for whatever reason. Uh, all he wanted to do was ask me all the drugs I wasn't taking. Mm -hmm. And then he turned me on to Charlie Francis. Mm -hmm. And so I called Charlie on the phone, and I remember having a really interesting com uh, conversation with him where he talked about, uh, you know, like 
we were talking about like percentages and he was talking about like, Hey, how do you get stronger? You know, like what are the percentages? And he's, I was like, I don't know, 85, 80%, 75, somewhere in there. He's like, yeah, perfect. That's where majority of strength is, is, is built. But unfortunately, if you run in that zone, you get slower. And he mm-hmm. talked about the idea of running faster than 92%. And, you know, and we kind of got into this no man's land. And uh, his interesting point was if uh, if speed and strength were built in the same way, you get faster by running in the same percentages in which you got strong. Yeah. And he's like, the only way you get fast is by running fast. And, uh, you know, repeated submaximal efforts don't increase speed. And it was the first time I'd actually heard anybody put that together. And at that point, uh, Charlie was super influential on me. I think I think one of the problems with that is people will probably have a little bit too narrow of a bandwidth, you know, like on the ceilings and basements, whether it's volume or the distance run or the, the intensity that's applied there. And so, well, you know, there, there's plenty of examples of sprinters that have probably never run an, uh, above 92% in a training session in their world class and they're on the podium. You know, so where is that bandwidth and how wide is it? It's probably a better better way to look at it or everybody's an individual and not everybody's going to be able to meet in the same way yeah like i've coached two guys under 10 seconds and neither one of them lifted one was allergic to the weight room and the other one was scared to death of the weight room but they ran fast so if the weight room i mean but we've kind of matured into this idea that somehow the weight room is the vehicle for everybody Mm -hmm. and i think it's a mistake i i I, I think the weight room has value, but, you know, my question with young coaches or athletes on a return to play project or whatever is the why. Well, why do you want to do this lift? Why do you want to do this lift with these sets and reps and this density pattern through the week? You know, what's your evidence or what's your intuition saying that this is going to do for you? And, you know, whys have a lot of layers. And, and you know, I, I tell guys, if you can't give me a couple layers of why, we're going to use this item, this exercise, this apparatus, and we probably need to have further dialogue. Makes sense. Uh, you know, obviously you've crafted a philosophy over these years. Uh, can you give us a little bit idea, uh, like of, of that philosophy and more importantly, like your approach? I mean, is it based upon the individual and analysis or? Well, I think there's, you know, when I was a young coach, what I did is I started collecting training systems. So, you know, at the time I was a big jumps coach. So who, who was jumping really well then? And that was the East Germans, the Russians, the Cubans, some guys on the West Coast, and a few Caribbean guys. So I just collected all of like, well, how do they train in the off season, early season, and during the season? And this before computers or spread spreadsheets or anything, and I just taped them all up on the walls. And this before markers, even so, I had colored pencils. And I said, what, "What are the common denominators?" So all jumpers do acceleration work. You know, all jumpers do some kind of speed training. All jumpers do plyometric training. All jumpers do something in the weight room. So I knew those were essentials. It was safe to prescribe those things and explore and research those things because. They were common denominators. And so I've always kept that approach in any sport that I get into, whether it's hurling in Ireland or cricket bowling in the UK or, you know, a skier going downhill. What are the essential things that they have to do and what are the essential things people are currently training? That, that's a good starting spot. And you want to get esoteric off there, fine. But it's an educated esoteric drift. It's, you know, you, you've got to keep the essentials the essentials. Awesome place to start. Now, when did you take on, a, you were a mentee 
and learning from individuals. When do you start to take on mentors? We mentioned a yeah. mutual pal, Trey Z, at yeah. University of Texas. Was he your first or was there many before that you learned lessons from? Well, like, like I said, I grew up in, in the farming industry and in the construction industry. And so networking and, and seeing outside expertise and then construction trades, you know, you're, you're an apprentice and then a journeyman and all of that. So I went through all that processes and unbeknown to me, that's what I was doing as a coach with Coach Tillets. You know, he was kind of, you know, I was like the apprentice and he was, uh, you know, the master carpenter. And I've always built layers in that and diversity of networks, not just like in sport, like I have people in cancer or radiology or management or military special forces, you know, so I draw networks and expertise from them. So I'm a product of mentorship and I'm still being mentored by a lot of really smart people. I've always had the, this idea that there are no secrets. Like, you know, when I see a guy advertise, you know, we got the secret sauce, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> You know, are there really any secrets in physical culture? You know, I think everything, you know, the, the Chinese or go back to the Greeks, you know, that you know, we're talking about kettlebells. Well, the Greeks were using kettlebell-like stuff back, you know, before antiquity. So I've always had an open-door policy, and, you know, people show up and watch and dialogue and, and whatnot. And, you know, I guess that kind of was my first foray into mentorship. You know, I believe in, in auditing, and you know, I think people should come in and look at what you're doing and question what you're doing and monitor, kind of do a SWOT analysis. So when people visited, it was kind of an unofficial audit. I'd say, what were the questions? What You know, is there a pattern to these questions? Uh, you know, what are they curious about? You know, uh, what did I have to explain several times before they got it? Well, obviously, I'm not presenting it right if i got to explain it 10 times before they go, aha. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, like I said, doors just open and it, you kind of get this drift and more and more people started showing up and asking questions. And then, uh, you know, I, I started helping some football guys with combine training for their 40. And the next thing I know, you know, I got NFL guys showing up, you know, on return to play problems with injuries because in track we deal with injuries. and right. We have to at a really high level. And so somehow I just got into return to play uh, work with a lot of different sports, but it, it wasn't by design. It was the same thing in sprinting. Like I, I didn't, I had no desire to be a sprint coach. I, I found it kind of boring really uh, as a chess game. But I had a few jumpers that ended up sprinting on the relay, and then they ended up sprinting really fast in open events. And then next thing I know, I got like 8,000 sprinters showing up asking for help. So mo- most of my stuff's kind of accidental, kind of like uh, uh, Clouseau, you know, the family <laughs> detective. You know, just like, well, here's some evidence. Let's go. Well, I mean, it's uh, you make a good point. I think everybody, and, and I, I do this all the time when somebody all of a sudden is, uh, you know, selling sport performance training in the weight room and, you know, they, they have this secret system or they're doing this and this. Like, I'm always curious, like, okay, what are these people doing? And it just looks like something, some adaptation of what has been done for years in the past. Well, interesting thing. So I, I worked, I taught in Sweden for about eight summers. I coached a lot of Swedish athletes and had a really good connection with a guy named Bjorn Bloomberg in Fallen at a sport high school there. 
And he was Estonian by birth. And so Fred Kudu, the famous Russian decathlon coach, was Estonian, and they were good friends. And Bjorn had been able to study in Leipzig in the DDR and in Kiev at the Soviet Sport Institute. And his library was for miles and all of And I'd build out these med ball circuits. Um, you know, I was a big proponent of med ball back before they became something just because of, you know, research in the olden times, sure. like Swedish gymnastics back in the 1900s. So I, I thought, you know, I'd really created some pretty cool med ball circuits that were pretty unique, the order of the exercise and the sets and reps and all of this. And then Bjorn had these old movies of Swedish gymnastics training in the 1920s. And there's my med ball circuit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you almost to a T, like the, the type of exercise, the weight of the ball. You're like, these guys are pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I, one year at LSU, we had a lot an outbreak of adductor injuries or whatnot. So my son was like four, and I'd put him on the floor and have him do different things and tell me where he's feeling it because it's unvarnished. And so I developed these plank series. You know, people do plank exercises. I thought I'd really develop this cool plank thing. And that summer, I was on through the library going through Fred Kudu's circuit training for his decathletes. There's my plank series, and it's copyrighted 1952. <laughs> yeah. 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 So then I had to go back all my lectures and papers and, you know, give credit because, you know, I thought I'd invented something should have been out there for decades. So uh, it's probably like a lot of knowledge. I mean, uh, we were joking about the pyramids earlier, mm. and I, I – um, uh, the, oh, this is kind of a funny antidote, but um, I was asked to speak at the Institute of Human Machine Cognition, which is a DARPA-funded research group. There's a guy named Ken Ford that asked me to come in and talk. He was interested in like sarcopenia and like uh, you know training older athletes, so he brought me in uh, to do a couple lectures. And uh, I asked him. We were sitting at dinner, and I asked him a question of um, you know because he had he was a NASA advisor. Like, how come we can't go back to the moon? And he he made an interesting point. He goes, well, you know, we don't have that technology anymore. And I asked him like, well we had it at one point. What do you mean? What, you know, what happened? He's like, well, when we went to the moon, they were actually doing real life calculations and drafting. And they, they had, uh, um, these mathematicians and, uh, you know, rocket scientists that were drawing these projections and trajectories. And they were figuring this thing out in real time on paper, you know, calculators and abacus and, you know, whatever else. And he goes, and then all of a sudden we kind of got away from it. And then they transitioned everything over to computers and they put all that stuff in boxes and sent it to the Smithsonian. Everybody got old and all of a sudden they brought in new people and the technology to go back to the moon was locked in those boxes with those people that were no longer working there anymore. And the people that were, you know, using the computers now didn't have that foundational knowledge to be able to do all this. And so all of a sudden you go 20, 30 years and now all of a sudden the people that went to the moon are no longer there. They've passed on there. They're dead. And that stuff's just collecting dust. And all of a sudden technology disappears and we don't have that tech. And uh, he related, he goes, look at the pyramids. He goes, if you look at, and we went through this deal, he goes, you know, they had the pinnacle piece with Giza. And then all of a sudden, years later, they tried to build other pyramids and none of them were successful. How did they lose that technology? And he goes, all of a sudden, you know, you have people talking about aliens and, you know, how did they lose it? He goes, we lost the technology to go to the moon just because we transitioned from pen and paper to computers. Yeah. So now we're back to reinventing the wheel. Yeah. And he goes, and that's what happens in history. You know, we figure it out. And then it goes away, and then we got to refigure it out. Well, I think there's a probably a, you know people are attracted to bells and whistles, shiny and new and innovative, and you know they they don't value wisdom. 
and wisdom is hard to measure. It's hard to define sometimes, but uh, a big part of wisdom is experience, you know, time at the coalface. And, you know, a lot of these modern aerospace engineers really haven't spent much time at the coalface, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it's like forging. I mean, I, I weld and fabricate in that and, you know, watching guys that do this all the day can, you know, look at the metal, feel the heat, hear the sound and know exactly what the temperature is. Yeah. Or they, they can see the glow of the metal and say, well, this has got uh, this alloy or this impurity in it. So it's probably not a good call. Yeah. So with, uh, with your philosophy and your approach, like who do you like to coach? You said that, uh, coaching sprinters wasn't yeah. fun. Football players, uh, athletes. I'm I'm just curious. Like, I mean, every sport's a chess game to me, you know. And there's levels of chess, so you know, each puzzle's interesting. I shouldn't say, you know, they're they're boring or it wasn't exciting. I mean, there are periods you you set a world record or win a gold medal. It's exciting, obviously, but the process, you know, it's a lot. You know, if I'm coaching a decathlete that's got to master ten events and, and be good on the day once a year. That's a little different puzzle than a sprinter that gets 20 races a year and, you know, gets several rounds in the Olympics before they have to hit their crescendo. So it's, you know, it's kind of apples and oranges comparison. I like to coach athletes that are curious, that are uh, are in, you know, the process, that are process people. Uh, I struggle with outcome people or robots. Like uh, I, I generally encourage those people to find a, another provider because I'm uh, I'm not very good at coaching robotic people or you know the, those types. So you appreciate the athletes that ask you why? Yeah. Okay. Because I've played for a lot of coaches that uh, get real frustrated when I ask why we do this. Well, a lot of coaches like to be robot controllers, you know, and you know I, I think that limits your toolbox, so to speak, if you got a robot and you got a director. Yeah. What kind of questions do you ask to find out if an athlete is a why person or a robot very quickly? Well, I always do kind of an induction interview and I'm like, what are you curious about? What what are you passionate about? You know, how, how do you approach this problem? I'm giving some case study type things. I said, oh, okay, if, if you have a hamstring injury, what's your thought process? Uh, do you blame the coach? Do you blame the weather? Do you look at yourself? If you look at yourself, what do you look at? You know, what What was the instigator of the problem? You know, when you had a good race, well, what do you think went well in that process? And when you had a bad race, what do you think went poorly in the process? So you kind of ask questions and you listen really well so that you can ask better questions and add on. But, you know, generally I can sit with someone in 15, 30 minutes and figure out, you know, if they're curious and open-minded and, uh, you know, in love with process thinking. Sure, hitting the recruiting trail helped accelerate that process, especially you told us one story when you were going up to the Dakotas, hunt down an athlete. Yeah. Uh, that's my cold weather PR. It was, um, I think it was minus 28 with 40, 50 mile an hour wind. So the wind chill was minus 88. Um, yeah, I'd love to tell you I was a great recruiter, but I wasn't. It's probably part of uh, college coaching that I didn't enjoy. I, I, I love to have athletes on campus for a visit and their family and to talk shop and go to dinner, break bread and talk about life and sport. That was fine. But like calling people every week, how's your dog? How's your sister? How's coach blow doing? 
Yeah. You know, that, that was a grind and getting on airplanes all the time. Like in, in track, we're, we're seldom off. You know, you got cross country in the fall and you got indoor and then outdoor. And then if you're coaching post-collegiate, you're in Europe all summer. So, you know, I'm a million miler on three airlines. You know, I, all I've ever done in my life is live in airports and hotels. So the, the, the recruiting side of things was probably one of the reasons I got out of college coaching is just... Well, I mean, kissing a bunch of kids' asses to come to your school. And now you're in a situation where they have transfer portals where they get there. And I, I, I was laughing at like all these kids they were kind of went through and then we're like talking about, you know, why these kids were transferring. Every one of them was like, my coach doesn't like me. And uh, I was like, man, as an 18-year-old kid, like I don't know if you, you have the ability to make that decision. And the wow. fact that these kids can pull the ripcord, sometimes you just got to stay in, stay in the situation and fight it out. Yeah, but, you know, there's the other side of the coin, too. You know, how do these coaches develop relationships with athletes? Do these, you know, it's human nature to want to feel respected or observed or that people know I'm here. You know, that you know, I, I grew up in the 60s with Woody Hayes in Ohio when there weren't recruiting limits. And they'd have like 300 guys out. They just signed guys so other schools couldn't sign. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you know, I, I had a friend that played four years at Ohio State, and he, he never once talked to Woody Hayes. Four years. There's always the other side of the street on some of these things, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, look at Urban Meyer. Look at that whole thing going down. Oh. I mean, can you imagine signing and playing with that guy? I mean, you know, I mean, what's cool in, uh, in the NFL is a lot of stuff gets leaked that you don't necessarily see in college. And him going in and belittling assistants and people just outing him, I thought it was great. Like when I saw all the information coming out, kicking about, the kicker, kicker, uh, kicking the kicker, or basically, you know, bringing in his assistant coaches and calling them all losers. When he hired those guys, I'm the only winner in this room. Wait a minute, you brought us here, you hired us, you wrote our contracts. So I mean, just the, I mean, yeah, bringing in your own resume to show, like, <laughs> uh, well, let's be honest, in the pro leagues. Uh, one, one of the mechanisms they fail in is a process called vetting. I think they do a shit poor job of vetting, you know, coaches, staff members, players, or whatnot. Like, if a Fortune 500 company vetted like the NFL did in their team, you know, they'd be out of business. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And what's wild is if you go, you know, uh, having gone through the process, the problem is that the people that are vetting you are like the least intelligent people in the room. I mean, I'm sitting down with these scouts and like, I remember, uh, you know, I graduated from Berkeley in four years and was working on my master's and my fifth. And, you know, my backup plan was if I didn't get a chance to go to the NFL, I was planning to go to law school and they, you know, Hey, if this doesn't work out for you, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I applied for this scholarship to go to law school. Why, you know, and like seeing these guys heads explode, like wanting, like, well, I have nothing else. This is all I want in my life. And the idea that, you know, I might potentially have some other avenues was like upsetting to them. It was a red flag. It's yeah. like this guy's an independent thinker. He's not a team guy. He won't. He won't buckle to the discipline. Yeah. Well, you gave that advice to. Oh yeah. Some of Dave Spitz's athletes. Yeah. So uh, Dave Spitz, who's a buddy of ours up in Northern California, he was coaching a bunch of uh, college kids for the combine when they still had a combine a couple of years ago. So he hit me up, said, "Hey, can you come up and work with these guys?" I said, "I'd love to work with these guys." So I went up and uh, put them through a whole bunch of stuff, and I was like, "Hey." I'm going to show you how to prepare for the world's best fashion show. I'm going to show you all the little things that the call that the pro coaches don't think, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what to say. And I want you to put on the best fashion show possible. And from like technique and things, I even sat him down. I'm like, this is what they're going to ask you. This is what they want to hear. And it was like, you know, if this doesn't work out, what are you going to do? I have nothing else. My life depends around this. I have no plan. You know, and I just tried to prep them. 
And every one of those kids did pretty well because of it, I hope. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was not prepped. I think I went in there uh, having this idea that I was trying to prove to them um, that I was smart, intelligent, and, you know, somewhat of a free thinker because I was. And uh, trying to put my best foot forward, not realizing that they just want a bunch of mindless drones who are, you know, so happy for the table scraps that fucking fall off the, off the table from the NFL. Yeah. Two NFL starters right now, offensive line from that class, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I and the, both of those kids could play, and I don't think they got drafted. You are correct. But yeah. now here they are on two playoff teams. Yeah. These kids we went and worked with, I, I told them, I was like, I, I would tell you if these kids couldn't play, they can play. I mean, that was one thing as an NFL player, like uh, especially off- offensive line, kids would come out or guys would come out, and I could tell you within a few snaps whether or not this guy was a player or not. And every one of those kids, and they didn't get drafted, and I was like, those kids can play, so I, I don't know what to tell you on the draft. Well, I think some of the better online coaches in the league, you know, they probably have a different vetting system, you know, than other teams. And, you know, there's some teams you just see them turn out linemen year after year after year, and it's a small handful, but – you know, I think those coaches have two things. I think they do that well, and they're good teachers. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, um, the one thing that was interesting for me, uh, you know, the uh, so when I came in as a rookie, uh, I remember they, I was playing. I started at right tackle as a rookie, and I remember watching all this film. And, uh, you know, the guys I'm watching are all like 6'8", 360-pound black dudes. And I remember asking the coach, I'm like, you got any like 6'5", 300-pound white dudes that I can watch? Because uh, the techniques that you're showing me on film, like, I can't do this. I mean, I'm just not – that's just not who I am. And I remember, like, my coach, like, scratching his head and being like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, do you have any Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> stuff from the 70s? Yeah, I'm like a, a Tunch Jokin. Uh, do you have uh, Jim Lachey, uh, you know, a Zimmerman, uh, you know, Jumbo Elliott, those type of guys. Yeah. I'm like the dudes that are about my size and uh, about my – you know, physically about what I can do. And then I just watched that and I was like, those guys all said vertical, big punch. I'm like, I can do that all day long, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, that was an interesting point. I remember years later, my coach being like, man, that was really sharp. I'm, I'm glad that you did that. And I remember thinking, how come you don't look at every individual and be like, Hey, this guy kind of reminds me of you. This might be a technique that you should pick up. Well, I think there's a bias, especially now in the NFL to a ske- schemes and tactics and strategy, you know, like the number of coaches still teaching in the NFL is dwindling. Yeah. Power Athlete Nation, want to take one minute to remind you why Power Athlete is performance for the people. We love the garage shimmer. We love the athlete that is taking their performance into their own hands. We offer eight different strength and conditioning programs reverse engineered from common goals like getting jacked, becoming more athletic, or introducing the barbell for the first time. To learn which program is best for you, head to powerathletehq.com slash training. If you're an enthusiast, a parent, or a professional coach, we also offer education. At academy.powerathletehq.com, learn the method to the madness, the Power Athlete methodology, and a hell of a lot more. Next up, shop.powerathletehq.com. Hoodies, tees, sweats, shorts, you name it, we got it including posters. You put this up in your garage gym, you're staring at it underneath the bar, I guarantee that you're going to add 10% to your next rep max. And finally, you can check us out on YouTube. We're dropping movement demonstrations, going through our setup and execution of the finer movements found on all of our Power Athlete training programs and cutting clips of this podcast that you're listening to right now 
So if you want to share in this experience with your lifting buddies, go ahead, seek out Power Athlete on YouTube. And now back to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Hey, hey. Yeah, it's, it's all, it's all uh, statisticians and strategists. I did watch a fun HBO where they had Bill Belichick and Nick Saban just kind of cutting it up and filming that. And they spoke to their their upbringing. And it reminded me of you talking about your old coaching days in the film process where they had to literally cut strips of film and, and plug it together. And that was so valuable for them too as coaches. And that now it's just almost too easy that you don't get to – really organize your binder and have the specific clips to pull up in the specific scenarios and times that their mentors needed. Uh, so they were both joking that it's too easy for coaches now in the film room. And when we went and visited the Cal Bears, yeah. like their film room was like freaking one of the giant newsrooms set up and how easy and cool that was. So when I was in college, uh, our film room was like one-tenth the size of this room. It was a closet, and there was this poor dude. I think we, we met him there. And, I think so. uh, Yeah, yeah. He, he was the same film guy, except <laughs> now he was literally like a graduate assistant, like, you know, 20 years old in this closet. And what they would do is uh, they had like uh, – they had a tape, and then they had a master tape, and he had like a TV, and he would they would watch, and they would write down times, and then he could like cut, cut, and then somehow like transfer it onto this other master tape. And he had to physically go through and do it. So actually what happened is that dude became like the smartest dude on the field, like uh, in, in, in the entire deal because he watched film on everybody and had to do the cutups. So they would bring him in to talk about tendencies and this. And it was like, I was like, man, how's this guy picking this up? Because he's stuck in a room 18 hours a day watching cutup films and then would have to make it. And he had a whole list. It was like, okay, 1304, 1307. He would go through and then make all the cutups and then they would film it and give it to us. And then we would like check them out and had to give him back the tapes. And it was like. (laughs) It circles back to the Enigma area. So there was a guy in the the Enigma project in World War II named Chapman. And he kind of gets credit for traffic pattern recognition. So they're stealing all these signals. And he's going like, you know, all the submarine signals are coming out of these two places. And uh, the aircraft stuff's coming out of this place. So he was kind of the first guy to do that. Pattern recognition, if you will, you know, on a grand scale. And I think that's what these guys did. And, you know, I was referring to earlier about biomechanics. Like when I talk to biomechanists now, they, they don't understand some of the key essentials because everything's automated. So when they get stumped, they don't know go, how to go back and reverse engineer and find the virus because they don't know the essentials. Hmm. The uh, um, So I played for Dick Vermeil. And Dick had a, a guy that went with him everywhere and he was a statistician. And so he would literally crunch every, uh, like every play, every game of every NFL game and basically built this stat sheet. And then he would come in and he would present to us. He'd be like, uh, teams that are down by one touchdown at home, uh, that have like, uh, you know, one turnover have a 75% chance of winning. I mean, to the point where like he would fill us with all these things. And, uh, I thought it was cool. The only problem is, if all of a sudden one of those situations happened and when it wasn't in our favor, dudes would totally throw in the towel. Be like, oh, statistically, we're never going to win this thing. And like it was like uh, if you give up um, – what was it? If you uh, – you know, there's a deal called you know, uh, uh, giveaways, takeaways in the NFL, plus or minus. If you're negative, like you give the ball away more than you take it at uh, on the road, you're like you know, 90% chance of losing. 
So all of a sudden we like give up a fumble and the other team doesn't have any and we're down, uh, you know, on the road. And guys, I, and I honestly, I know people were thrown in the towel on that to the point where I was like, stop bringing that fucking dude in. I'm like, you know what? Just like, why don't we change the statistics and start lying to people and start pumping them up? Yeah. And being, yeah I mean, like, uh, I was like, I think that's what Sean Payton has done this year because Taysom Hill, like, watched the game where he threw four interceptions and they still came up on top. Uh, that statistically should never happen. If you throw four interceptions, your chance of like the NFL history, and this dude didn't do it just on the, like one year, it was like historical over the last 30 years in the NFL. And he would come in with these statistics. If you throw four interceptions on the road, you you statistically have like zero chance of ever winning that game. So Sean Payton's the greatest coach of all time. Uh, I don't like him at all. I, I am such not a Sean Payton fan. Maybe he understands the black swan. Yeah, yeah. He's he's the guy. He's the one. Well, yeah. Throw everybody else under the bus. That's the Sean Payton way. I mean, has a uh, has technology helped? Um, you know, in terms of like sport performance and what you do? I, I think it can, but it, it's a little bit like our talk about strength training. It's like, does does uh, technology, does do the metrics, do the numbers co-opt the process? And they should inform the process, not drive the process. And so, you know, like early days of GPS, you know, I remember reading some stories about Messi, the soccer player in Spain, and you know, the GPS guys were having a heart attack. They're like, he doesn't run very far or very often or very fast. No, because he knows the game. Yeah. Yeah, he has, he, yeah, he has vision. He's always in the right place. Yeah. So, you know, in the NFL, GPS data has given us some averages and it's measuring some things. And that information can be useful if there's gross violations. But, you know, an accelerometer on your helmet or your shoe would give us a lot more information about forces and change in direction forces and, and moments. So you could have a running back doing uh, red zone work and his GPS data would say he didn't run very fast or very far. But if you look at the accelerometer and all the cuts he made and, you know, the pirouettes and, you know, the forces on blocking or, or what have you, you know, he had a hell of a workout. The GPS would say the guy hardly trained. Years ago, uh, I was approached by an Aussie rules football team uh, that was having a hell of a problem with injuries. And they kept sending me all this data. And these guys were running 5K during 10Ks during games. And then they were trying to match that in training. And, uh, you know, all their strength training was all like three sets of eight, three sets of 10, three sets of 12, you know, all this kind of classic bodybuilding. And then they wonder why they had a ton of injuries. And I remember being like, you know, you guys do no top end work and ended up kind of just basically reversing and being like, okay, this is what you're doing over here. Let's do something, you know, singles, doubles, and triples, compound movements, pull heavy, you know, uh, do some short sprints and then let you guys get all the conditioning on, on the field in the game instead of trying to like match it, everything. Well, and I, all of a sudden injuries, you know, pummeled and went down from like, you know, 30% down to like 3% and they thought everything was magic. Well, I think the, you know, there's a lot of uh, what I call viruses from science that get into sports science. And one of them is the energy system myth. So energy system research has a long history. And a lot of the exercise physiologists that did the pioneering work and subsequent work, you know, they're endurance-based people. And mindset and passion and hobby and whatnot is endurance, whether it's endurance skiing or endurance swimming or endurance running or whatnot. And Energy system research is 
pretty easy to collect, you know, blood or gas, you know, the old Douglas airbags and things like that. So because it was science and they had the studies and it was peer-reviewed, energy systems kind of took sport science by storm. But, you know, one of the myths is, you know, like people get into, well, if I'm doing this, I'm in this zone of the energy system or this zone of it. Well, when, when you're born, all those energy systems kick on. It's just which one's predominating and for how long does it predominate in the activity? So like in AFL, you know, 70% of the time these guys are walking or jogging. But so do we ergonomically analyze what's happening in the 30%? Well, you know, they went real biased on energy system, you know, lactate capacities and thresholds and whatnot. When that's not the problem and that's not the crux of the sport. And so I think this, you know, science has a way of leading us down some rabbit holes at times. Well, also they, uh, with the energy systems, they almost discuss it like it's this, uh, like almost like separate rooms in a house, Yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, Hey, if you're you know training in that ATP, it's exactly this time. And then the minute that you go over this one second, you get into this glycolytic phase. And uh, I always thought it was kind of like, you know, almost like, uh, uh, you know, like music almost, you know, like you walk into one room, you can still hear music in the other room and it kind of blends and then they kind of transition. Well, back back in the days in the 90s, uh, these lactate pro analyzers came out. So you prick and you get a blood drop. Yeah, I remember that. And, you know, so we were doing a lot of lactate studies and I found this interesting. So a world-class 400 hurdler or 400 meter runner or an 800 meter runner at the end of a world-class race is producing 11, 12 millimoles of lactate, right? And plenty of studies show that. And then we started testing our sprinters. So, you know, one of our acceleration workouts uh, block starts to 20 or 30 meters and we do like five sets of three runs and, you know, copious rest between the sets because we wanted high quality and we were monitoring output. We didn't want to see output drop down. These guys could do maybe 15 runs that way. Well, when we tested their lactate at the end of that workout, 18 millimoles of lactate, and they hadn't run any farther than 30 meters. Like, well, there's a lot of ways to produce lactate. And it doesn't mean you have to run thousands or six hundreds or four hundreds. So what we found is power speed people can produce really steep, fast levels of lactate and then they it spikes and they recover, spike and recover. Where endurance people, they have a, a more gradual slope and then they do a lot of work in that plateau of lactate. So you're really training apples and oranges here. If you're a repeat, you know, sportsman, you know, you're more interested in the slope up and the slope down mm-hmm. and the time between there before you spike again. You know, those are the salient landmarks. And so, again, this is the virus of science. You know, the people got into lactate testing and what is lactate or what is your hydrogen, or hydrogen ion concentration level when it's, it's really, you know, when you look at the data, sprinters have unique curves, slopes up and down. And endurance people have more gradual slopes and they spend time working in the crap. Well, uh, how did we fuck up that, uh, the whole, the whole lactate thing so badly? I mean, this, the, the idea of the burning and the oxidative stress and this, and I mean, like, uh, like that feels like one of the most butchered things to this day. I hear still people be like, Oh, my legs are burning. It must be the lactate. And we're like, ah, uh, that's not the case. Like that, 
Oh, well, like, you, know, uh, yeah. you know, lactate's a fuel. We know yeah. from endurance people that they're really good at burning lactate. Well, I think part of it's the Krebs cycles. Like, people stop at pyruvate. They don't really look how things shunt there. And, you know, that that's just their last stop on the train. They, when they get to pyruvate, they think, okay, you know, we're, we're in this next level of the stratosphere. And they don't understand how complex biochemistry is. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... uh. Yeah, I mean, that that one to this day is still messed up. And I'm always like, man, I don't know how we messed that one up. Well, the, you know, sports just littered with myths. And, you know, like in America, we're, we're taught if you work longer and harder and more frequent, you'll be better. And, you know, that's true to a point. But, you know, at some point in your career, that becomes, you know, a double-edged sword and it kills you. So what do, uh, that's a great segue. I mean, uh, dispelling myths. Uh, I'm sure you've encountered them for you know for decades. What are some of those major myths, and and more importantly, are these myths universal, or are they just kind of uh, specific to countries and regions, and you know, like well, I, I think there's layers. I think there's global myths, and then there's geographic myths, and then there's sports specific myths. So you you refer to the AFL guys doing you know thousand meter repeats and stuff like that. You know that's a myth that that's going to make you a better AFL player. Uh, despite the, the the data, or you know, currently the Nordic hamstring is a is a big deal, and you know, like oh yeah, if you do this, you'll never have a hamstring injury. Well, that shit working out for people. Uh, Charlie Francis, yeah, that was a direct. You know, if you can do Nordic hamstring curls, you never pull a hamstring. Yeah, well, the the data says otherwise, right? <laughs> so you know, I'm kind of a common sense guy, so I'm looking at a Nordic hamstring. It's a slow eccentric one joint exercise. I'm thinking, wait a minute, sprinting's two joints at really high velocity, translating across the surface with turning on, turning off really yeah, fast. It's like, hmm. so I, I, you know, I was intrigued. So I did a lot of research in my travels and whatnot. And when I went into teams that were claiming great data on Nordics. And I watched the process. They were doing a lot of other things, other types of lifts, and they were doing high-speed sprinting. And so, you know, they had the total package. Nordic was just an adjunct tool in the toolbox. It wasn't the only tool. And I think that's the problem with scientific studies. If you delineate a lot of variables to make the study practical, you may be eliminating variables that were probably drivers of the process. Yeah. So what are else, uh, like, um, the other big myth is, uh, and I always wonder if this was purposely done, uh, the idea of like what the Russians were doing. Yeah. Like there was like a big thing where like everything that was coming out of Russia, this is what the Russians doing. And I always wonder if it was a disinformation campaign. Well, a lot of it was, but, uh, you know, it, even if you go into yes stuff and he was pretty straightforward where the study came from and what the population was, a lot of these were done on physical culture students, average students. Or whatnot. I remember study drop jumps, uh, three meter drop jumps yep. were the best. But we had a problem, you know, our population of 50 athletes dropped to like 10 athletes within. <laughs> because they were rupturing patellar tendons <laughs> and quadriceps tendons. So, yeah, there was a lot of misinformation or misapplied, you know, like people are big on monitor type stuff. Did, uh, uh, just, just to tell you, when uh, um, uh, I played football and then the offseason, uh, I had this dream I was going to be a 110 hurdler. And so, uh, all of a sudden, obviously in high school, in high school. and, uh, they were like, Hey, uh, I don't know if you're ever really going to be that competitive, but if you throw the shot and the disc for us, we'll let you train with the sprinters. And I was like, done. So I still got to do the training. And I remember when all of a sudden all that depth jump stuff came out and they stacked two picnic tables 
Oh, jeez. And we were supposed to jump off them and land in like this good like idea of like basically landing and then be able to jump back. And I remember like one picnic table was like, oh, all right, we can do this. And then on like the third picnic table, people are jumping and just crashing to the ground and not able to do it. And I'm like, this is bad. And uh, and I think it was Derek Woodsky was the other one that was like, oh yeah, I totally fucked myself up doing that. I'm like, I don't know who, <laughs> I don't know where where that came from, but that was a big one. You know, yeah. They, yeah, it was the three meters. Yeah. So you, you know, there a lot of this stuff is is the application. So like Vonderchuk stuff, very elite athletes at the end of their career or the peak of their career, you know, and, and people would take that data, that philosophy, or the that mindset or that process and think, well, this is universal. I can do it with high school kids or developing kids or females or whatnot, you know, and it's very specific to the snapshot that he took at that period of time with the athletes that he encountered. So it's kind of like a blood test. A blood test will tell you what your blood looks like that moment. Yeah. And you take that same blood test eight hours later and you're going to get probably some different markers. Yeah. So I think that's another problem in science is we'll take a snapshot and think that it's universal or it's applicable across the board. Well, the uh, I mean, uh, you know, the amount of people that follow our programs, I get hit up with people constantly with blood work. And uh, they're always like, hey, can I send you my blood work for analysis? I'm like, yeah, I mean, you can. But the idea, if you send me one, I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, like there's a reason I get my blood work done twice a year by the same dude for the last 20 years. So I can see what historical data looks like and we can see trends over time. Yeah, we know like with female endurance runners, you know, that battle a lot of them battle thyroid disorder or thyroid dysfunction. And, you know, the big dance is T3, T4, TSH and free. And how they dance over time, like if you don't get twice a month for about six months, you don't see the dance. You don't see the pattern. A one-off snapshot you, you might catch them on a good day or a bad day and overreact. Is, is that from the lactate? No, that uh, we we use a saliva assay for thyroid, you know, testing. Is, does the thyroid dysfunction come from the adrenals, or I think I think adrenal primarily, and probably some reds. In, in a lot of women, they underfuel or, or fuel improperly, and uh, there's probably a lot of dietary imbalances that, that triggers the stress on the adrenals. Uh, definitely, we'll see elevated cortisol, catecholamines, uh, prostaglandins, you know, most of the kind of overtraining markers in these people. You know, the one thing that um, I've noticed within the last 20 years, which is night and day difference, is uh, is women eating high-protein diets, mm -hmm. which I think has been by far the most beneficial thing that at least I've seen with our athletes. Uh, trying to find a woman that ate a high-protein diet 20 years ago. Or it didn't exist. Well, I mean, sadly, another myth, you know, back in the early days with marathoners and all that, they, they came out with some carbo-loading things, and then carbs just took over, and it's still prevalent. You know, if, you, if you're if you on a college tr uh, track team or cross-country team and you do the, the meal the day before, everybody wants to go Italian and eat bread and pasta, tons of carbs and you know, they, they, they didn't read the small print in the studies. You know, mm -hmm. like if you're not three hours into something – you know, that, that store probably isn't going to be readily available. Yeah, no, I mean, just the uh, the difference I've seen in, like, the female physiques in terms of girls lifting weights, it's uh, it's been dramatically different with just the adjunct of the – or well, the, the addition of a high-protein diet. Yeah, another thing we fight on the fueling front is, you know, the stigma that fats are bad and people don't really understand the complexity and the layers of fats and how they're essential and, you know, how that plays into the scheme. So a low-protein 
low fat, high carb diet is not the best one for performance. Probably wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> but yet, I mean, it's uh, that was what was you know a, a smoothie. I mean, it just it blows my mind. Well, you uh, know, like uh, I gotta have low fat yogurt, and I'm like, well, why then? Yeah, because. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what what are some other myths uh, that you've encountered? I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about you know female athletes, uh, you know, with the Russians and that. I'm, I'm just thinking like the, uh, you know, what you know the amount of myths that have have really just taken hold within the fitness and within the, the training room. Well, I, I actually did a series for our Altus group, like 15 of the top myths, you know, that are occurring like in track and field or power sports, and so like one of them is. Um, you know, that sprinters land on, uh, on their toes and they stay on their toes. And we got to develop joint stiffness and whatnot to do that. And no world-class sprinter lands on their toes. They land on the back of the ball of the foot. Yeah, the midfoot. And then as they come on to mid-stance, the heel sinks. It has to sink for the talus and calcaneus to glide and the tib-fib proximal to, to expand. So the heel sinks, and in most sprinters, the heel actually touches the ground, and then they roll off the forefoot. So there's this myth that uh, you land on the on your toes of the ball of foot and you stay there. That's not what happens. And so we got kids doing drills and exercises and sprint drills and, and repeated runs trying to land on their toes and stay on their toes. And we got people doing plyometrics, you know, trying to land on the forefoot. And, uh, you know, it's my, my bias and my opinion that this is uh, creating a lot of injuries and inefficiencies of running. So this myth that, you know, when we were young, get tall, get up on your toes, stay up on your toes. You know, you heard that all the yeah, time. Yeah, up tall and fall. Well, that's not what happens. Like at mid-stance, the human body amortizes. The hip joint yields, the knee joint yields, the ankle yields, the heel drops. Now, those yieldings are congruent. But that's how joints translate, and you put certain structures on stretch to get sprung off the ground. If you don't amortize economically, you're going to run slower. What? Um, what? Uh, or here, here was one that I always subscribed to. Uh, I always thought that people that had flat feet were slower than people that had uh, more of an arch, mm-hmm. and I thought that the arch was more like a rebounding, you know, yeah. almost like acted like a spring, and. Uh, that's one that's proved to not be true when all of a sudden you're looking well, at feet. Yeah, if you go into the NFL locker room, you know, probably 80% of the locker room has a negative arch yeah. or a flat foot. And yeah. those guys are pretty fast. And you go into the NBA locker room and it's the same deal. You know, that an arch design architecture is so much genetically influenced. Like Northern Europeans have a higher arch, it's farther back, you know, and, and then there's different components of the arch the, the transverse, the longitudinal arch. And I, I think the thing that people fail to realize, there's 26 major bone, bone joint factors of the foot. And the foot's really pliable, and it's like a symphony. And when we put it in rigid shoes or now with these carbon plates and carbon spikes, you know, we're, we're changing the dynamic. And so we're seeing epidemic numbers like in the NFL, uh, you know, with these carbon plates and, and carbon honeycomb spike designs and whatnot. Because carbon speeds up forces and velocities. And if the foot can't withstand it, it's going to send something up the food chain and something's going to destroy it. So when we look at Liz Frank injuries. Or I was going to say Liz Frank. Yeah. Uh, in the last five years in the NFL. Like, the roof. Like in my day, I'd never heard of those injuries. 
Now, maybe that was radiology or people underreporting or whatnot, but uh, we're seeing in track and field with these super shoes, like you can't believe the types and the numbers and the severity of injuries we're seeing. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember, uh, geez, I was in college the first time I heard about a Liz Frank. And, um, you know, and then, you know, the history, I mean, that was uh, Napoleon's doctor and they would, you know, they would, those oh, guys would, uh, I did not know that. Yeah. So it was named after Napoleon's doctor. So what happened was, uh, these guys would injure their foot. Like there's a, I think it's a ligament in the middle of the foot and it would tear. And then they were basically useless. So they would amputate the foot. And then Liz Frank was, uh, Napoleon's doctor and figured out that if you like casted the foot in such a way, it could give it a chance to heal. And so, yeah, that's a, that's kind of the coup de gras. That's a, definitely a bad one to get in the NFL, or at least it was. Now they do some stuff where they pin it and put it back together. Well, and, you know, we're doing a lot of research, too, with allografts on tendons and, you know, how to repair fascia of the foot. And, you know, some of the engineers figuring out, okay, why are these structures being torqued or under such severe torsion? And, um, you know, people are buying designer shoes with carbon plates and carbon spikes and, you know, it's just, you, you're putting the foot at risk. Yeah, but it looks cool, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> like like in our day, the, you know, the, the only shoe out there was PF Flyers or Converse All-Stars. And, you know, we wore that stuff all the time. Vans. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first shoes I ever had. I still wear them. Uh, what about ACL injuries? I mean, there's an, that's another uh, interesting myth. I mean, it's like the, I mean, not only the, the mechanism, I mean, uh, you know, so, I mean, that's, well, I'm biased and, and I do a lot of epidemiological research. So collect files and data over time. And, you know, I work, like I said, with AFL or European soccer or NFL or, you know, what have you, and start looking at the data and we're putting people in very rigid shoes and the surfaces are changing, even if they're natural, like a natural turf field today compared to a natural turf field 20 years ago is totally different. So now we got a real rigid shoe on a field that doesn't yield. Well, those forces have to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so like in the NFL, I work uh, with the NFL Player Safety Commission on some ideas. And we're looking, you know, with all these cameras in the stadium now, we can do motion capture on guys in the game yeah. and look at things like lateral Torso position, forward flexion, you know, where's the foot contacting in front of the center of mass? How are people decelerating? Um, so we're looking at ACLs, whether it's happening, you know, unimpeded uh, after a collision where the athlete's trying to correct himself. Uh, during a collision, you know, is it an acute incidence where, you know, somebody like we had one last week where a receiver got caught and, you know, guy went right through his knee you know there, you can't bulletproof against that that stuff's going to happen but i think something that's being under researched is the bias in training that's putting structures at risk and so you, you have a lot of people that are uh, biasing anterior chain exercises and if posterior chain exercises aren't compatible then you lose it. So I work a lot with Dr. Matt Jordan in Calgary. He's this famous uh, ski rehab guy. And, uh, you know, he, if you want to look at ACL repair and timelines and processes, he's the go-to guy. And, you know, the average Olympic skier on the podium's had four to five knee surgeries before wow. they get on the podium. It's just the price of doing business sure. for ski. And so they've done a pretty good job of looking at causality and return to play and, and environmental factors. And, you know, on the ski hill, they look at the 
kinematic factors of the skier going into the gate at the apex of the turn and the exit of the gate and the speed at which, you know, where are they on the hill? Is it shallow, steep? What is the speeds? And it's the same thing the NFL's doing with these studies. Are, are there torso positions, lateral listing or forward flexion that are dangerous? Like if you get in them, you increase your incident. You know, how far out is, you know, the, the what I, I call the fulcrum when you do your movement? You know, are you cutting on the inside leg, the outside leg? All of these things are uh, variables. So I think with AI and being able to crunch all these numbers, we'll be able to identify risk kinematic factors. Now, how do you change that into training or player awareness? You know, that's a whole nother sphere of influence. Uh, I heard you speak 2017 at Play's Speed Summit, I believe it was called, but Derek Hansen, Brett Bartholomew, uh, Landau. Um, and just pulled up my notes from there. And one thing feels relevant right now is takeaway for me was you speaking on seeing motion yeah. and you highlighted uh, five key things, watching an athlete move in real time, stop action, varied speed, reverse action was the big one. And you introduced a term called forward, you called forward bias, which is pretty funny. And then changing your perspectives, front, rear, side, panning, yeah. above. Uh, so cool takeaways that I guess apply both to uh watching athletes in real-time performance, seeing the injuries, but also the training that, that you've learned over the years. Yeah, I, I think people in the weight room probably have a little more advanced uh, paradigm. You know, like if you watch someone squat or do an Olympic lift or a lunge or, you know, a hinge movement or something, we've got a technical model that we expect and we'll say, okay, the bandwidth allowance is X, and stage of development, maybe the bandwidth's a little wider and we're using a safer weight or whatnot, but we have a model. Uh, unfortunately, most strength coaches watch from the side or behind. They don't vary the positions. You know, well, you'll see things from the frontal view that you'll never see from the rear view and same from the side. And we have cameras above, so we're looking at the Z-axis. But big picture is we identify postures you know, various phases of the movement, shapes, you know, what are, what are the segments, you know, off these postures, uh, key landmark positions of certain body segments, uh, angles between those segments, yeah, and then movement pathways between those landmarks. So that's kind of our checklist on developing a coach's eye. And, and sadly, I don't think a lot of strength and conditioning people transfer that toolbox they already have out onto the pitch when they're doing change in direction work or uh, teaching running or, you know, trying to refine running or whatnot. So like in acceleration, there's some big rocks. You know, each stride gets a little longer. Each stride gets a little quicker. Contact times lessen. Flight times increase. And the attack angle changes. Those are the five balls you can juggle. Most coaches can see that or sense that or feel that or for sure with the iPhone or whatever and all the apps you got, you can collect that kind of data. Uh, but I, I don't see a lot of people doing that. And, you know, you get into the tribalism, all the coaches, eye, you know, they can't see this, they can't see that. Well, I think you can see posture, shapes, key landmark positions and where the segments are. If someone's squatting, you can describe well, their torso's leaning X degrees and their butt's here and their knees are here and their ankle did this and their foot 
axis is X, you're already in the process. You've, you've identified postures, positions, shapes, segments, and probably some angles. You know, again, this argument is a full squat, is it a half squat, is it a quarter squat? Well, the argument's about angles, and you know, my deal is like, well, what's the purpose of the, the exercise? Like, if I've got a high jumper, quarter squat works pretty good for them if it's real heavy. Yeah. You know? So for me, the, the coach's eye is kind of an essential tool to have in the toolbox. I agree. The, uh, I tried, I, I coach a high school lacrosse team and then use the warm up as the opportunity to implement the strength and conditioning. So that's all we get is that 10 minutes and then try to pull the sport coaches in because they have that ability to communicate. Now it's just seeing the positions we want for defense, similar to how we're teaching the squat and just trying to make the connections for them to improve. And we start speaking these the same way. So I can coach it at a lower stress in the warm up. They can start to see these things, communicate it, and then translate into the field. Hopefully, yeah. And those sports specific coaches have a window and an observation. They may not be able to use the terms or the expressions, but you know, I'll go into an NFL place, and the DB coach says, you know, like these guys are struggling with this, this, and this. So tell me more about it. Well, their hips are here. And they need to be here or, you know, their posture's here and they should be here. And I was like, okay, you're seeing the essentials. Now, how do we correct that virus? Or, you know, you know, like a lot of people try to collect it with closed chain exercises. And the guy gets pretty good at closed chain, but then you put them in the real world and it's sure. not there. Mm-hmm. So what, how do we build that bridge between a closed chain process into a more open chain process? But a lot of these sport coaches, they have the eye. They just don't have the jargon or the terminology yeah. to talk to the sport uh, science providers. Yeah. I mean, one of the mechanisms that I observed in the NFL uh, happened all too often with uh, offensive linemen was uh, guys feet planted, rotation, and then loaded and would always end up in some like herniated disc or some back injury. So, I mean, that's where uh, I actually got it from Charlie Francis was all the GPP med ball work with a lot of the rotation and the idea of being able to stay in a good position, generate force, and then catch and then be able to to, to go. And uh, I worked a ton of that transverse plane with those med balls. And that was actually, I think, why I never ended up with any back injuries. And it was the most interesting thing. We'd watch on film and I would see it happen. I'd be like, oh, that guy hurt his back. It was the same mechanism, feet planted, rotation, and then loaded. Well, this is what I'm talking about in bias training. So, you know, in your era, a lot of guys squatted or maybe Olympic lift or deadlift. Yep. So they were biased to hip hinging and extension. But when we run and when we are in combat, there's rotational components. Yeah. Well, if you spent 80% of your outside the field work on just hinging, yeah. you've got a gap. Huge gap. And a lot of times, I mean, most every time, I was never in a bilateral position where my feet were, par- I mean, you know, feet were, you know, like uh, uh, equal, I guess, in, in terms of like this. I was always in a staggered stance. So we would do, uh, you know, a ton of staggered pulls. And that, I mean, it was everything came from those different stances because that was the stance that was more reminiscent of what I was able to do. And, and, and this is a point I bring up a lot in audits. It's like, are you ergonomically analyzing the task that you're asking the athlete to do on the field or the pitch or whatever? And that's where you start. What positions and shapes and angles do they get in 
And then how can we support them? How can we yeah. develop tissue tolerance or motor recruitment or what have you for those shapes? So I use the term ergonomic, you know, which is in physics, erg is the unit of work. And I think we do a poor job of stepping back and saying, okay, what are the movement tasks, sports-specific movement tasks that this individual has to do? So much of the time in strength and conditioning, we do the physical literacy end of things pretty well. Mm-hmm. And maybe some global sport literacy things pretty well. But then when it comes to specific sport literacy support, uh, we're clueless. Well, I mean, it, it just seems like common sense. Like if this is the set of movement patterns that are requiring you to be successful at your position or your job or whatever it is, we should develop a strength program or a strength and conditioning program that challenges those movements and those positions, especially through space, you know, and uh, and then finding effective ways to, you know, almost shore up the you know, shore up the, the weak points. Yeah. And, I mean, and yeah. that may not be in the weight room. No. You know, that, that that's the thing. You know, a lot of stuff happens on the field. So like in the NFL, you have individuals. And that's probably the most mismanaged period that I see in the NFL because you have position coaches that will torch guys during individuals or they'll do, do things that are high risk during individuals. And when they go to sevens or teams, these guys are already cashed. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> You sound like every uh, – uh, you've obviously been to an NFL practice where you get done with your your individual and you're so smoked that you're like, I don't know how the fuck I'm going to get through the rest of practice. Or, you know – And the coaches are fucking going crazy, blowing the whistle, you know, this. and I mean, yeah. or, or, or the individuals occur after the bullshit team warm-up, so you're not really warmed up. No, no, not at all. And you go from five miles an hour to, to 60. Yeah, to 100, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, in, individuals always – yeah, that was – you got to be able to survive individual just to be able to get to the team stuff. Has have you heard of any team trying different ways? Or? Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, yeah, but the, the the problem, like, there's a lot of like historical precedents in the NFL. Like, uh, um, you know, teams will do this because you know we've always done this, and like, uh, you know, the the smartest thing that ever happened. And I I really wish I was ten years younger because I would have got to play in a different era. But um, I played for the Dick Vermeil era where it was uh, two three-hour practices, nine-on-seven, one-on-ones, and we were basically banging. You would bang uh, AM, PM, AM, and then we would take uh, special teams practice off in the afternoon. And we would do that for 30, 40 days. And so, you know, you're in you know two three-hour pre- – or three – in two days, you're in three three or nine hours worth of padded practices and just absolute fucking decimation. And then all of a sudden, uh, 2011 hits the lockout and the new CBA, and they get five padded practices for the entire year. And they basically got rid of that. And, uh, you know, I remember Tony Gonzalez calling me and he's like, dude, we could have played 20 years in, in, in this system. He's like, think about how many dudes. I mean, in that era, if you played eight or 10 years, you were like Superman. Now it's like if a dude played his eight or nine years, you didn't even tap into his career. You have guys that sat on the bench for four or five years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting that, you know, all these old myths that they thought that you had to do to get guys ready have proved not at all. Like, uh, oh, we got to have a combine. They got rid of the combine and they still drafted people. They got rid of the pads in, in training camp and guys still went out there and killed it on Sunday. So it, it's amazing that they like uh, the NFL holds on to these old myths like, you know, just like with well, claws. Well, like I said, I'm an observationist and I collect data over time and I, I started – probably in the late 80s, looking at NFL careers and longevity and so on and so forth. I started noticing that there's always five or six guys that would make the Pro Bowl at the end of the 
year and have career season and they missed all of preseason because they were recovering from the surgery or whatnot. Hmm. And I'm like, hmm, something's going on here. This guy missed all the preseason camps and the training camp. And he kind of played himself in the shape the first two or three games. And then he had the career year. Yeah. So that got me, you know, a step back and saying, hmm. So I really started honing in on that. And, you know, what do we see with veterans? They just get better at managing things. So they, they, they get married, they have kids, so they're not out running around. They, they, the wife probably cooks or they hire a chef and they have a massage therapist. You know, they start taking care of the body and they learn how to pace themselves and practice. Like, what's essential? What do I got to do? You know, what can I cruise through and things like that? Man, I never learned that. Yeah. I never learned that. What, John, was it you or, or one of your teammates that spoke to the uh, like the weight? Like once you got to, well, that was me. Yeah. Um, so I I, um, I came in and started as a rookie, and then I got hurt, and then I came back, and I had this idea. Uh, it was funny. They told me they wanted me to weigh like three hundred twenty five, three hundred thirty pounds, which was a terrible idea. Uh, so I was trying to get as big and strong as I can. Uh, did get big and strong. Benched you know five thirty five for reps and just hit some insane numbers. Weighed three hundred twenty six pounds. Went out there the very first mini camp, and I was playing. I was playing left tackle, and I took a set. And I remember I was so slow that I felt like a planet with this little defensive end orbiting me. As how fast he was beating me around the corner, and I had this like instant epiphany where, like you know, like those movies, like the the Bruce Willis before he like hits the like detonates the bomb in uh, Armageddon. How his whole life flashes before his eyes. I saw my entire career flash before my eyes and realized that I was going to fucking get cut. If I didn't make a drastic change, I walked off the field for that after the mini camp and went home and lost 25 pounds like that. I mean, I, I, I would get up in the morning and I would run, I would go lift some weights and then I would go and I would like basically run at night and uh, ate like a chicken salad and lost like 20 pounds in port in like six weeks, just cause I knew and I came back and ended up being better than ever. But it was, uh, I, I really feel that, uh, if I had taken the advice of my coaches and the people that were supposed to be mentoring me. I would have not have had any fucking career. And uh, they were like, I, I mean, dude, I had no business weighing 325 pounds. At the, at the end of the day, the NFL is based on speed. And at 305, I was dramatically faster and strong and better than I was and came in and started. And they were even like, oh, shit, we really made a mistake. And I'm like, yeah, good thing I don't listen to you fucking assholes. So I think the, the, uh, what I found, too, is when I was trying to put on all that strength, I realized that I got to a point where more strength didn't help me. And the time that it took to develop it ended up taking it away from what was really important, which was my technique work. Yeah. And uh, I read, a, uh, I think it was in, it was either in super training or what, or maybe it was in um, science and practice, science and practice for, uh, yeah, for Zadoskorsky. I read about, uh, they were, they did a study with shot putters and they figured out about a 200 kilo bench was ideal. And the amount of time and effort that it took for them to get up to 220, 240 kilos took away from the speed and they actually decreased their ability to throw the shot. Or the injury rate went through the roof. Yeah. So I, I ended up kind of figuring out like a set of metrics for myself that I knew I was ready to go back and play. One of them was uh, 10 pull-ups with 90 pounds between my waist. Uh, I would squat, uh, I think it was uh, five sets of five at 495 and five sets of five at 405 bench. And I could do that in sub 20 minutes. So I would just go back and forth, hit five there, here, there. And I would go back. And if I could do those five sets of five on both of those at 405 and 495 in sub 20 minutes. And I think I even did it in sub 15 at one point. And I had all these kind of like little things that I knew I was ready and it didn't help me necessarily to go past those. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I figured that out about my third year. And so when I was training, I would train back to what I knew the minute that I hit those, I knew that uh, not necessarily that I had to coast, but that I just needed to maintain what I had already developed and just keep working my speed and keep refining my technique. Well, that's, that brings up the topic called microdosing. So once you get to a certain level, what do you need to maintain? Yeah. So where we're blind in the science is what I call refractory curves comes from cardiac rehab research. So, you know, plenty of studies say, well, if you don't lift for eight weeks, you lose this much strength on this exercise or so on and so forth. Okay, that may be true. But how many sessions does it take for you to get back to that level? That's well, under-researched. Yeah, but you, you hit it right on the head, get back. So what we found all too often is if somebody builds a base level of strength and actually has a foundation, if they go away and come back, it comes back dramatically faster than people that never establish it. And that's what we call the refractive curve. So yeah. I've had kids that have retired for a year, burn out, or an injury they just couldn't figure out and come back. And uh, I had a, a pole vaulter, Brad Walker, American record holder, and he took a year off to just burn out. And then he came back. It was the Olympic year. And he's like, I want to change programming. I'm burnt out. I only want to train three days a week. And I don't want to be in the weight room or whatnot. I said, well, like, you know, let's let's do something in the weight room to bulletproof you a little bit. How about Olympic lifts once a week? Okay, I can do that. Well, the third session back, he, he did like 160K, and that was close to his PR. And he hadn't lifted in 18 months. Yeah. Still got a case study of one, but. Yeah. Well, I always love these studies when they're like, we only did it for two weeks on two people. Now this is going to drive all the science. Yeah. You know? Uh, what, what about, you mentioned playing into shape. Yeah. How about conditioning tests in the, the, the team coach realm? Yeah. Like I know NFL still does conditioning tests. Well, uh, when you consult, what's your feedback in that respect? Well, Is it a necessary evil? No, that's kind of like the, uh, like the test that you put out to kind of catch idiots. That's like the, uh, like the hooker test in the, in the hotel. So like, uh, they were always like, when we'll, what test is that? Oh, you, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So when you walk into uh, when NFL teams go on the road, there's always hookers at the bar, and the like guys have been basically like arrested or they've got into trouble because the hookers in the bar. And so like what, uh, our chief of security at the Eagles was always like those hookers there for an intelligence test to catch the idiots. So, like, if you're going to the bar at the NFL, like, you know, when you're on the road and you show up and go to the hotel, if you're over there trying to pull the hookers in the bar, you're not a very smart dude. So, we got to get rid of those guys. So, that's like the basic, like the the, the sprint test is the same thing, yeah. right? Did you do the work even though everybody, you know, passes the sprint test the first day in pads, you're like, <sighs> you know, just like you are in the first game when you're dying. And then, you know, then all of a sudden one year we, uh, we had a buy, I think, around the seventh or eighth week and they decided to redo the conditioning test and, like, 60% of the team didn't pass, but yet everybody was in game shape, which completely destroyed any validity for conditioning tests. <laughs> yeah. So don't get busted by the hookers in the bar. <clears throat> to be honest, I haven't seen very uh, many valid conditioning tests. Is there any you like? I mean, is there one like the beep test? I remember um thinking what else i mean we I, we always ran half gassers well, 16 half gassers was like our, yeah, our I, test. I, I think you can get a snapshot of like global ability or fitness or whatnot with some of those tests so like the the beat test in soccer all over the world's kind of standard and 
you know, some of the shuttle tests and whatnot. But then there's a lot of bullshit tests like the AFL. Still a lot of teams use six by one K test. Hmm. Oh, that sounds awful. Yeah. 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 Uh, did the, the three 300 yard shuttles was pretty nasty. I don't mind it. Yeah, that was terrible. Well, you know, I, I, I circle back to ergonomics. So, you know, social media, I follow a lot of people and I see fall workouts and, you know, world-class high jumpers still posting crazy stuff like, oh, man, great workout today. I'm crushed. 10 300s. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy's a high jumper. He runs 10 steps. He jumps 10 times in a meet. Why is he doing 10 300s? I don't know. I have no idea. He's he's doing his own program. No, this is epidemic. If you go on social media, I'll, I'll guarantee you, world class jumpers, you'll see that work out a lot. Well, it, isn't there something like I I constantly feel like social media is uh, uh, there's a lot of virtue signaling. Like there's this idea that like you have to somehow be uh, you know setting your body on the funeral pyre and lighting it up for admiration on social media to show. You know exactly how hard you're working. Well, I got a theory on that. I don't think he did all the reps. I think it's like those fitness women who show pictures of pizza and donuts, and, and they, they don't, don't fucking eat. eat. Yeah, they're like, "Oh, we totally had a cheat meal." They're, then they're in the bathroom throwing it up. I'm like, "You did not eat that. Get out of here." <laughs> yeah. uh, do you Ur- think urban myths? Yeah. Do Do you think social media has hurt or helped performance training? Mm. Good question. Great question. I mean, I, I think it's helped in terms of like connecting people that I wouldn't necessarily be uh, like wouldn't be put in front of. So it's introduced me to people that I would have never have seen. But then I also think, is that necessarily a good thing? Well, I, you know, I think it's a double edged sword. I think, you know, it makes people aware that there, there may be other ideas or different concepts or different ways of looking at things or, you know, exposure to research. You know, I see a lot of cool articles that I download all the time. But, you know, the flip side is there's no filter. I mean, anybody can post anything and be a keyboard warrior or a keyboard expert, you know, and, you know, really have zero time at the, at the coalface. So, you know, I think it's kind of like uh, how do you develop a filter system for this? And, you know, that's where the network comes in. You know, I'll send a paper out to five or six guys in the realm that we're talking about. So let's talk about this with what do you like about the study where there are holes in it, you know, doesn't have application and, you know, have educated debate about it. But unfortunately in modern times, people just grab a research paper and go, wow, this, this guy's an esteemed scholar. So it must be true. And it must be applicable to my sport. And, you know, the guy works with cross country skiers in Norway and, you know, some basketball coach, all this paper and says, yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. Do you, do you think, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're, uh, um, I don't know, I, I kind of go back and forth on this with, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the world's best athletes have a certain genetic propensity towards it. Is, I mean, is the, you know, is genetics 80% and 20% and twenty or do you believe that somebody can train into something? That's well, a tough question. I mean, there's plenty of studies. You know, we work with a group called Athletogen in Nova Scotia, and, you know, they look at a lot of these uh, chromosomes and markers and alleles and, and epigenetics and so on and so forth. And there's, you know, numerous evidence of people that, you know, lack the key alleles for sprinting that made Olympic finals. You know, and you'd say, well, maybe they're outliers. Well, the, 
my number's a little bit bigger. So, you know, there is the nurture part of things too. You know, I've, I've had some people that I would call, quote, genetically gifted beyond description and they never made it because, you know, they couldn't handle the process. So I, I, I think it's kind of a juggling act between genetics and nurture. And, um, you know, I, I am kind of biased, you know, like, you know, if, if my son's 5'10", 180, and he wants to be an NFL lineman, you know, I got to break the bad news <laughs> to him that probably not going to happen. Yeah, no, I've, uh, I've had to tell people that all the time. They're like, hey, uh, you know, what, what are the chances? I'm like, you got any uncle hiding in the background that's like 6'10"? Well, I, you yeah. know, I, I get a call girl who went to a Division three school, and she hurdled 13-8 in their, you know, conference meeting. You know, I want to go to the Olympics. I'm like, you're 22 running 13-8, probably not going to happen even with a genius coach. But, you know, if you want to go on, you know, maybe you can get to the 13-5 or, you know, if the plants line 13-3 and make the Olympic trials, but you're probably not going to make the Olympics. Yeah. Is any... Any successful stories you've been a part of, of of transferring sports, meaning a track go to football or a football come to, to track and have success? Yeah, I, you know, I've had a few guys like uh, I've worked with a guy, Reggie Jones, Kansas City's receiver. He was a world-class triple jumper, long jumper, made the world champs and didn't play football at LSU, but he played high school football at a high level. He's recruited, but he some injuries in high school. He thought track was a better way. And then when he got done with track, tried to make it on the circuit and was starving because track doesn't pay. Um, we got him a tryout and he made the Chiefs and I think he lasted 10 years there. Wow. Yeah. Um, I've had quite a few track guys do Winter Olympics to pay the rent, you know, so they've had a lot of success in bobsleigh, for example. Uh, but a lot of these sports, the skill level and knowledge of the game is just so high, it's hard to transfer you know, once you get to a certain level, like if if you're a world class shot putter, uh, discus thrower, and then you think, well, I'll try the NFL. Like, you know, the knowledge of the game, the speed of the game, the complexity of the game. You is, you know, you can't make up ten years of not being in the game. And it's also like the, um, um, like the uh, like violence IQ. Like, uh, it's really hard to take somebody that's not used to that. Like, uh, and I always think with like the throwers and that, especially those guys like they come into it, they're just not used to that level of violence and like that, like the repeated efforts and just trying to fucking murder people for every day. Yeah. Know? Nick, Nick Hardwick was a high school wrestler, then walked on to Purdue and then 10 years, Philip Rivers center at the chargers. So I guess he had that yeah. in wrestling, but not necessarily football. Well, I mean, but he, uh, uh, he was also severely undersized. So he was a pretty good, uh, he, well, um, did he play football in high school? No, no, that's right. And then he went on and walked on, but he was little or he was under, he wasn't little, but he was undersized. I forget his, uh, high college position. He, yeah. Well, he, yeah, he, he was like 200 and some pounds and then, you know, now he's back down to it. He's like, what, like 135. Yeah. His yeah. challenge was keeping all that weight yeah. on to play center. Well, I mean, I always figured it was easier to keep muscle than, than put on a bunch of fat. I never felt like, uh, putting on copious amounts of fat didn't help me in any way. Yeah. Just made me feel slow and fat. You know, old Louisiana high school coach said fat doesn't fly, and that always kind of stuck with me. Yeah, oh, that's good. Well, I mean, they uh, the tail of tape. I mean, they they'll do body fat percentages in like you know uh, in the Olympics for sprinters, and the guy who's usually the leanest dude, the guy that carries the most amount of muscle, tends to win most often. 
Yeah, but then you go to in Major League Baseball, and you know those, that, that goes out the window. Well, it's because baseball's not a real sport. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, it's 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 organized grab ass, right. and and it's it's one hundred percent skill based. Uh, we we used to train some baseball guys, and uh, I'm like, these are by far the weirdest athletes. So, yeah, a friend of mine uh, works with the Diamondbacks, and he was doing a lecture, and he had a picture up like four guys, you know, the Dominican Republic Triple A ball players. They were Rip these all, you know, and all this, but they hadn't made the majors. And then the next slide was like five guys at the local bar, and <laughs> they were all stars. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, you know, his question was, which, which guys are having the most success in baseball? And, you know, a lot of people don't understand baseball picked uh, the AAA guys, and they're like, no, these yeah. bar guys are the ones that are all stars. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, that's the, the now, skill. There's the some skill great is- athletes in baseball. Yeah. But I mean, just the skill acquisition and the ability to play and do—I mean, those guys' knowledge in the game is so high. Yeah. You know, you can take really good athletes and put them in the NFL, but I don't think in baseball that works very well. No, no they have to play. No, they—they come in in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning just to steal, run, run the bases. That's it. Yeah, those are the athletes. Well, you know, trying to hit a slider or a curveball at ninety-four miles an hour is not an easy task. Yeah. Oh, I believe me, I I would gladly not play baseball. I mean, it's way too many games. Well, the, cur- the curveball got me out of the game. Like I could, I just couldn't pick up the spin of the ball, so I was bailing out all the time. And it's like at age fourteen, my dad said, "I don't think you're made for baseball." <laughs> <laughs> like, what what sport did you play growing up? I played them all. So I played football, and uh, in the winter, I played factory league ice hockey and basketball. And then my brother was a wrestler, so you know I I scrimmaged in wrestling. In the spring, it was track and field. I was a pole vaulter, hurdler, and then in summer it was summer baseball. And so it was whatever season was in vogue. What uh, what would you say the greatest display of athleticism for sport is? It pole vault? Is it uh, the decathlon? I mean. (laughs) If you could, I mean, to, to me, uh, I think uh, pole vaulting is by far the greatest form of athleticism. You have to sprint as fast as you can with this flexible pole, put it in a dime, lean back, and then let it shoot you over the top of something. Like that's, and then you have to work your body through space to not die. Well, I, I think the term athleticism is a pretty vague term, you know. So if you look at Olympic three-meter divers and what they can do with their body or gymnasts on uneven parallel bars or, you know, if, if you want a big toolbox, you have a decathlon, you know, you got all these different events. And, you know, I personally think an NBA guy, you know, the skill sets that they can exhibit on the court or a baseball player, you know, that's a – all-world shortstop, but also leading the league in, you know, batting or whatnot, you know. So a lot of this is how do you define athleticism and and whatnot. I'm a little biased at track and field, so, you know, I kind of go with the pole vaulters or um, I, I don't know if you've ever watched the hammer throw for a throwing yeah. event. You know, that that's some pretty unique stuff that happens pretty fast. Yeah. No, it's uh... – I mean, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, you've gift, gifted athletes that are training specific to execute the task at the highest level. And that's, and it's cool to see when somebody does it right. Like, uh, um, the guy throwing the shot put that set the world record in the, uh, Krauser. In, yeah, Ryan Krauser in the, uh, in the Olympic trials. I mean, that well, dude. I, I, I think that's the beauty of sport. I think people are, uh, you know, even if they're somewhat educated, can see the aesthetics of movement. Yeah. And, and they can discern good movement. So if, 
if you go to a college hammer throw meet, you know, like half the guys were walk-on throwers that didn't make it in the other event, and some of them were, you know, recruited as hammer throwers. She got this big potpourri of ability. The average fan can sit there and say, this guy's really good and this guy's crap. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I said it years ago that um, our bodies or our, our mind or whatever, like we are really good at uh, observing symmetry. I mean, it's it's how we know beauty. I mean, it's uh, like it's to the point where uh, growing up in Southern California or actually living in Newport Beach, it was interesting because uh, people have a lot of plastic surgery. And you're looking at these people and you're like, man, something is off and I can't tell what it is. And I asked somebody about it. And it's like it's because uh, it's unnatural symmetry. You're seeing things that don't look right because we're so prone to being able to observe symmetry. And all athleticism is, is our ability to observe symmetry and we can observe beauty the same way that, you know, the analogy I give is uh, I'm not a Ferrari fan, but if I hear a front engine B12 Ferrari pull up instantly, I'll turn and look and I know exactly what it is. Just like when you see somebody do something that takes your breath away. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no way to quantify that. Yeah. Well, Dan, I'm, you have a lot to offer online. So where can people continue to learn from your experience? Well, I'm not a marketing guy. Um, I do work with a group called Altus. We're based in Atlanta, and it's uh, an elite athlete training program, primarily for track and field. Uh, But a big part of our work is coaching education and and performance education. And so kind of one of our missions there is people are swimming in knowledge right now, like online courses, alphabets behind your name. But people don't know how to apply it or when to apply it, you know, that They've got the tools in the toolbox. They just don't know when to use them. And so that's kind of our mission is to mentor coaches and performance individuals like therapists or team doctors or SNC people and, you know, get getting more adept at using the right tool at the right moment for the right duration. Mm-hmm. Cool. So our Altus website is, is easily accessible. A lot yeah. of free content. Cool. Yeah. And then Twitter. I know you're on Twitter. Are you on yeah. Instagram? I haven't figured out Instagram. My 10-year-old granddaughter kind of keeps me up to date. So Twitter was pretty easy. She set me up and I do that. Cool. Well, you heard it here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Thank you. And thank you to Thorne, sponsor of this episode, Power Athlete Radio, for connecting us to Dan. And uh, Let's see. I'll I'll link up in the show notes. 20% off everything. Power Athlete, you got it. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Dan Pfaff on Instagram. That's at D-A-N-P-F-A-F-F. Until next time, bye! Drop on, drop on, drop on.